Welcome to the Black Psychologist Podcast, where we have conversations and give insight into human behavior and promote mental health wellness. I'm Dr. Kyle Osborne, and with my co-host, Dr. Jason Coleman, who will discuss health topics, everyday life issues, and try to give you a better understanding of yourself, other people, and the world around you. So just sit back, relax, and hopefully you'll leave with some information that'll have you living your best healthy life. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. I want to welcome everyone to an extravaganza, something incredible that's about to take place, world-renowned, the Black Psychologist Podcast, episode 30. I am one half of your humble and gracious host and clinician here for your listening pleasures, as always, Dr. Kyle Osborne. He is I and I am him. And of course, I'm never on the mic. I'm never on the pod by myself. I'm here with the one and only. You see, his aura is positive and he don't promote no junk. See, he's far from a bully and he ain't a punk. Yeah, that's what you heard. So just clean out your ears and just check the word from Dr. Jason Coleman. How are you, good brother? And I'm good, bro. I can't complain. For once, you know, I got all my work done for the day, you know. Um, so I'm in a good mood, man. I like that T-shirt. Hey, man, listen, man. You know, it's the, it's the, it's the monster. It's the, the one and only. You know what he does. The, the legendary. That's you it. Know? That's it. You mean, listen, they don't, people don't have this DNA. They don't, they don't have that. One and only. I get it. Make sure you post a picture of your Prince costume for Halloween. Make sure you post that to your to your page so everybody can see. They ain't ready you know? for that, bro. They ain't ready for that. <laughs> yeah, they're not ready. <laughs> they don't want that. They don't want that. You know, I go full mode. I only know one speed only. Listen. Oh, nah, man. You know, listen. Nah. You know, I, I go in there. I mix it in with the sports. Like, it's the Chappelle show. It's, you know? <laughs> you know? It's, it's, Yo, that's, that's where I was going. If it, it don't apply, it, let, it, let it fly. I'm going to leave the reference right there. You hey, know? man, it's shirts versus blouse, bro. This is what we got, <laughs> versus the blinds. That's right, bro. What's good, though, man? Everything Every, good? Everything is good, man. We're moving episode 30, so we definitely want to make sure that we're, um, set, you know, acknowledging and, and thanking everybody for the support that we've made it this far. So please continue to, to watch, listen, subscribe, share. We've gotten a lot of good feedback from people um, on YouTube, and the, the numbers are continuing to grow. Uh, so we appreciate all the feedback, all the support. So continue, you know, to spread the word, to continue to support us. We definitely appreciate it. Any feedback, any questions, statements, concerns about anything, we love to hear it. Um, feel free to shoot us an email or a message at uh, the Black Psychologist Podcast, gmail.com. Um, so we want to hear it. We, we, uh, we definitely appreciate it. Definitely. I definitely agree. Um, just want to thank everybody who takes the time to listen, um, you know, and we appreciate it. We're going to keep the content going, you know. Absolutely. So before we get started, um, I wanted to take some time to acknowledge um, and send our condolences to, uh, regarding the part, the passing of the great General Colin Powell, uh, who was the first black secretary of state. He was the first black national security advisor. He was the first black chairman of joint chiefs of staff. Um, and just, you know, just a remarkable man, a remarkable uh, public servant, an exceptional patriot and 
amazing leader of, of men and women. So, um, you know, definitely want to acknowledge his contributions to, um, to us, to our country and to many people that he's touched. So I wanted to definitely send our condolences and thoughts and prayers to, to his family. I, mean, I, I definitely got nothing to add to that. Um, again, I second everything you just said. I mean, just in terms of looking, you know, looking at his life and how much he achieved, um, and just definitely a role model for, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. So definitely going to be a loss. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of people are feeling that loss today. So condolences to his family and supporters. Absolutely. All right. So, Jay, first up is uh, it's football season, you know. So, of course, you know, somehow, some way, football always finds its way, you know, coming across our desk. So recently, just as recently as uh, two days ago, Monday morning, um, Eagles right tackle Lane Johnson uh, just recently rejoined the team. So he had been uh, absent. He had right before the uh, Kansas City game um, week three, he had unexpectedly been ruled inactive. And there was a lot of, you know, rumors and things going on. Um, even the head coach of the Eagles didn't know when uh, Lane was going to return. Uh, you know, they just kind of ruled it as he was dealing with some personal matters. And Monday morning, he sent out a tweet and a message that, um, and I'm going to read the message that, you know, he broke his silence explaining what he's been, you know, experiencing and what contributed to his time away from the team. And so I'm going to read um, his post. He said, I would like to thank everyone for their understanding and support over the last two weeks. I appreciate the positive notes and messages as I've worked hard to restore my personal life. Depression and anxiety are things I've dealt with for a long time and have kept hidden from my friends and family. If you're reading this and struggling, please know that you are not alone. I'm excited to rejoin my teammates and coaches. I'm grateful for the entire Eagles community and looking forward to continuing to play in front of the best fans in the world. All right. So, um, Jay, when you, you know, saw this tweet, you saw this message and he, you know, went into and discussed why he was away from the team. What came up for you? Uh, You know, but first, like first, before I started <laughs> like thinking about what he actually said, it was just kind of the general theme in terms of mental health. Um, it's starting to kind of emerge a lot, especially in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, I mean, out here, you know, on the radio, 98.7, like Bart Scott talks a lot about mental health, not necessarily his own mental health, but he was talking a lot about the benefits of like a sports psychologist being available to the team. I believe when he was on in the, on the Ravens, Right. Um, uh, D boys, you know, stand up. Of course, Dak Prescott has has talked about his brother, um, Brandon Marshall, on his podcast. He's talked a lot. Um, so hopefully, you know, like I'm cautiously optimistic that, you know, this could be significant progress in terms of, you know, the type of athlete that we're starting to see come out. Right. Um, we don't have to rehash all the different sports, but, um, I mean, again, Jalen Hurts, right? Not saying he's the best player on the team, but the most important piece on the team, the quarterback, he had nothing but support, right? Um, and I think kind of the evidence for that is like football is is kind of like one of the ultimate like warrior sports. Um, but you didn't you didn't really you didn't hear any leaks. 
not from the organizational side, you know, not from, um, you know, the locker room side, you know, um, you didn't hear any leaks uh, saying, why is he out? You know, people questioning, you didn't have all these false narratives floating around. So to me, that means that the the, um, team was in kind of in lockstep, you know, Um, obviously his his, his teammates, probably had like some sort of idea of what was going on, right? Because he has a history of challenges. And I believe there's another teammate, you know, that also struggles with anxiety. I don't know who it is. Uh, Brandon Brooks. Right. So obviously, so so they're a tight unit, right? Because, um, you know, nobody kind of let that slip out, Um, you know. (laughs) And and in combination with that, you know, Organizationally wise, you know, it seemed like there was support. So I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. You know, I think um that they may we may be, you know, uh turning the corner when it comes to this. Um, but yeah, it was a it was it was a good story, you know. Yeah, um I'ma highlight what you mentioned, especially with the organization, with their support. Um for the reason that you know, he mentions in, in the second portion of, uh, of his statement that he's excited to rejoin the teammates, the team, and, you know, continue to play. However, when this comes into in the play as far as his health, his mental health, like that's secondary, right? Everything is secondary right. to that. And I'm happy that they were able to support him in that manner. Because right. a lot of times, you know, the media, things will get out and, you know, he just stepped away and he said just for personal reasons. And, you know, that could be a variety of things, you know, things will come out where the narrative will be like, oh, um, he's on drugs, he's doing all these other different things. Unfortunately, like negative things tend to come out or the narrative tends to get spun about when people step away for personal reasons, right? People tend to jump immediately to the negative. And that's what the media, because that gets the most traction, that gets the most um, hits and that gets the most you know, views or, or, and so I'm happy that, you know, they were respectful in, in allowing him to deal with whatever he had to do as far as getting the support and help that he needed, whatever that looked like. Right. Um, and so, like you said, like we, we've talked in the past, how that's been a rarity, you know, in a lot of different sports. And so, um, yeah, this, this shows a lot of bravery, especially for, like you said, um, these are the guys up front. Him and Brandon Brooks are, are linemen, right? So these are the biggest guys on the team. Right. They're the ones that tend, like you said, have to be the toughest. We're looking from the outside looking in because they're protecting the quarterback. So I feel like this is right in line with whatever blitz is coming down the way, like he's picking up because this is real, right? There's no way he's able to do whatever he can do on the field if he's not right health-wise. So, you know, this is a situation where I feel like this shows a tremendous amount of strength. I applaud the Eagles um, for showing their support towards him. And I hope that he continues to, you know, get, you know, whatever services, whatever support that he needs. And so he'll continue not only to just be a good player, but for him just to be a healthy individual. And so, um, yeah, this is great just for the reason that I like how he puts at the end. He said that if you're reading this and struggling – know that you're not alone, right? right? Notice that the toughest of toughest go through this. So I'm, I'm happy that he put that in there, and I hope that that prompts other people to want to, you know, try therapy, reach out for help, anything, that, you know, if they're feeling any of these symptoms, that this prompts them to, you know, reach out and get the support. I mean, I agree, and I think, um, 
one point that we often overlook when we're kind of looking at these type of situations, you know, the sports fan and some of us wants to tell people to like, you know, kind of, you know, toughen up and just get out there. Right. But I think we have to remember in a good, like a good way to view it is, you know, any athlete will tell you, especially at the, at the, at the top levels, that it's, it's a reason why you don't get out there when you're injured. Right. Or when you're not a hundred percent. Right. Because if you're not a hundred percent, you can injure yourself even worse. Right. Um, and I think we have to understand that, especially for football players, the reason why I said cautiously optimistic is I meant like cautiously optimistic in terms of us creeping towards viewing mental illness as we view medical illness. Right. Um, and again, it's easy to make the connection between Lane Johnson. If he had a broken ankle, not only will we know he would it would be harmful for him if he went out on the field, but he would put other people in danger. Right. Um, and it's the same way if somebody has anxiety, has depression, you know, they, they, football players aren't just, you know, running and hitting stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, that's part of the job, but, you know, they, there's plans that need to be that that are being followed. Right. Audible. Right. Um, we all know famously Oklahoma hearing that but from from Peyton at the line. Right. right? So I, I'm saying especially when it comes to alignment, they all got to step a certain way. They got They have calls that they got to follow. And I only say that to say is you got to be grounded and focused in or you can get somebody else hurt. You know, not just your quarterback. You can get get a whole, you know, a bunch of people hurt. Um, so I think we have to kind of focus on um, that part of it, too. You know, um, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, I, I just kind of like the fact that, you know, Lane Johnson kind of just turned it into his own personal like public service announcement, you know, and just saying, like, you are not alone. So. Um, yeah, I'm gonna leave it there. I think um, it's overall a good story. Yeah, so um, absolutely. And, you know, again, I, I have to applaud the Eagles um, for them being in support. Um, they could have handled this completely differently. They could have penalized him. They could have done all different things. Um, but they supported him. And, you know, I'm hoping that this starts to set the tone for other teams and other organizations, you know, for the, the sheer reason of, again, if you're just looking at it from a performance aspect, you want your players to be in the best shape, not just physically, but also mentally. Like you said, especially with the line, you got to be in lockstep. You got to be in the best position. And guess what? If that person is not in you know the right frame of mind due to whatever they're experiencing, whether it be stress, whether it be anxiety, all these other different things that they get thrusted their way on a day-to-day basis, um, no, you know, it's, it's totally, the, the organization has the responsibility to protect their players. So I will say that this is a step in the right direction as far as an organization, at least as it appears to say, you know what, we're going to support you, allow your time for you to get yourself situated, for you to take care of yourself, most importantly, and then come back to the field when you're ready. So um, hopefully other, other teams you know, uh, take the initiative and, and I'm happy that he continues, um, you know, Johnson, I'm, I'm happy that he, like you said, he made this, he created his own platform with his own PSA. So, uh, this is good. So we'll continue to watch this. All right. So moving from a brave man to a not so brave and decent man, um, John Gruden. So, Literally, like right after we recorded and, and we aired our um, our message, our, our our last episode, the whole John Gruden thing uh, f- 
fell out, right? It, it, it started to unravel. All right, so for those people that aren't aware or are, um, aren't as in tune to sports, John Gruden uh, was the coach of um, the Oakland, not the Oakland, the Vegas. <laughs> the Vegas Raiders. All right. So John Gruden was the uh, head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders, I think, since uh, 2018. So he resigned last week as the coach of the Raiders due to years uh, worth of emails that surfaced in which Gruden used racist, uh, misogynistic and homophobic language and rallied against players that protested during the national anthem. Um, now, during this time when he made these comments and these statements and these emails came across, he Gruden was actually the, um, working for ESPN as an analyst during uh, Monday Night Football. All right. So literally, this was the weekend before last, that Friday. So it was revealed that Gruden had sent an email in 2011 in which he used racist language uh, to refer to the NFL players union rep or union head, uh, the DeMario Smith, who's African-American, and he called him DeBoris Smith or Dumboris Smith. And he said that his lips, uh, he had lips the size of Michelin tires. So despite that racial trough, right, he was still allowed to coach on Sunday. So this happened like that a Friday. He made that or that email was discovered and he was still allowed to coach on that Sunday. All right. Right after on Sunday or Monday or Sunday evening, it came out that the New York Times had reported that this wasn't an isolated incident. So the NFL or the Times had accumulated a bunch of emails stemming from an investigation into workplace misconduct with the Washington football team. And the emails that were between John Gruden and former Washington team President Bruce Allen and several others uh, that were also in the email chain or an email group. Uh, we're all high-powered white men, just throwing that out there uh, for a point of reference. And uh, he just had a number of offensive statements. Um, he called Commissioner Roger Goodell. He called him an F-word, and he called him a clueless anti-football P-word. Mm-hmm. Um, he also said that uh, the commissioner should, uh, should not have pressured Jeff Fisher, who was then the coach of the Rams, uh, to draft queers, which is a reference to Michael Sam, who was an openly gay player chosen by the team in 2014. He, uh, John Gruden also criticized um, President Obama during his reelection campaign in 2012. He called the, uh, the vice president at that time, our current president, uh, Joe Biden. He called him a nervous, clueless P-word. And then they reportedly, over other emails, exchanged emails that included photos of women wearing like only bikini bottoms and included one photo of two of the Washington football team cheerleaders. All right. That's a lot. So this has been this has been going on for a number of years before he became a head coach. Um, so, Jay, as this was, you know, um, taking place and as information and everything was falling out, uh, what was your thoughts about all this? Uh, I probably had different thoughts than most people. I'm not going to spend too much time talking about this. Um, you know, it speaks for itself. You know, he lost his job. Um, his reputation is ruined. <clears throat> Everything he's ever really achieved in football has an asterisk next to it now because of, of this. It overshadows it. So he's lost everything. So there's, there's really no need for me to run him over with the bus, you know, because um, he already threw himself under it. Um, but it's just an example, again, of, I think this goes well beyond like microaggressions, but um, it's more of like a hostile kind of work environment type of thing to me. 
Um, but it, to me, it just reiterates, you know, you see after this, John Gruden gets to take his $60 million and go off into the sunset or whatever, right? But the person who is impacted is who? The Morris Smith, after being humiliated, right? This person who um, has completed law school, has a Juris doc- Doctorate, right? Um, he's probably way more intelligent than John Gruden. You, you understand what I'm saying? He's definitely way more accomplished academically, right? He has to answer the questions, right? Carl Nassib, he's the one that has to take a mental health day, right? Um, so again, the perpetrator gets to kind of just go off into the sunset, right? Um, and, and, and say, st- stand up, chastise all of us and say, I'm not, I've never had a racist bone in our body, in my body. Like we've never heard that before. So I'm going to leave that there. You know, John Gruden has done enough to embarrass himself. I would kind of speak to the bigger issue. And I know, you know, a lot of people probably won't agree with me, but this speaks to the bigger issue of um, casting or casting black people's feelings aside as being totally emotional or statements as emotional. Right. Because if we go back one or two years, you know, there's a guy named Colin Kaepernick, right, who was saying for years that he was being blackballed in the league, right? And that, and he's filed a lawsuit that the NFL settled, by the way, okay, um, because of that same reason. that he was saying behind the scenes, this type of behavior was going on, right? And everybody, Tony Dungy on down, everybody said, no, no, it's okay. Because these guys, I'm around them, and they're good people, right? And then what do we find out from one guy's email, right? And the big question is, so that's what I was thinking about. So Colin Kaepernick isn't crazy, right? And all of us aren't just emotional conspiracy theorists. Um, and the other thing I was thinking about it is we still have a lot of white privilege that is going on, right? Because John Gruden was talking to somebody, right? Who was he talking to? He wasn't talking to a bunch of black guys or a bunch of Latinx guys or a bunch of, or a bunch of you know, LGBTQ guys. He was talking to a bunch of people that share a lot of his same characteristics and socioeconomic status, right? So that is the problem. It's a million other problems is the problem. So I'm not going to go all the way down the rabbit hole, but that's what I thought when I first, you know, kind of saw it. Um, and that's kind of all I'm going to say about it. But what did you think? Um... One, I was the first apology. Well, one, I don't I don't like the fact that they allowed him to resign. Like just the optics of that to me, like you said, oh, like he's stepping down, like he's choosing to. Like even if it's right. a hey, step down before we before we fire you, like no, you need to be terminated. Like the optics are like if you're gonna send a message and be like, hey, we're zero tolerance, we're not to-, whatever the NFL wants to say. It should be a situation where, like, no, he doesn't get a chance to resign because, like, again, it, when you say someone resign, it's a step down. Like you said, he's right. stepping down to go right into the sunset with whatever guaranteed amount of money that he has and all these other different things. The other part was after he made the first uh, racial trough remark was that it, it was so entitled, his apology, right, or his quote-unquote apology. Like his his apology was um, something to the effect of, "Well, uh, I, I'm not racist, uh, and I'm tired of talking about it. Right? I want to I want to focus on the game. Like you, who are you? Like they, just the entitlement was was mind blowing 
for the reason that one, you're out here, you're offending this population of people, right? This is just the first remark that he made. Right. And so you, you, where do you go? Where do you stand off as far as being like, oh, well, I don't want to talk about it anymore. You know, I'm, I'm done addressing the issue. I'm done addressing that I've offended a certain, you know, group of people. So, and then also the entitlement is the fact that he felt comfortable verbalizing, you know, your thoughts or whatever, you know, this exchange, like in an email to your friends, again, like we talked about was a group of other high powered white men. Like mm-hmm. you felt comfortable verbalizing this in an email on the company server. It wasn't like this was like a Gmail server. This was like to the Washington football team. Right. I think that speaks volumes in the sense of, you know, and I don't know if I attribute that to stupidity or arrogance. I'm going to say it's the latter um, because this is a bigger issue. Right. This is a bigger thing where this is long overdue reckoning as far as for the NFL. And it underscores the basic problem. And you alluded to that is that, you know, unfortunately, like you said, he wasn't on this email by himself. Like the NFL is full of John Gruden's. So Kaepernick, absolutely. This is a day of, of validation for him. Right. Because this is what he was saying. This, like, this is what he's been talking about, things that have been happening behind the scenes. But, and, but, did we, I mean? but did we really need and I'm not saying you're saying this, but did we really need the 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 the, the validation? Whether whether you get your whether you package your racism in a John Gruden package or a Donald Sterling package, what does it matter? Right. It comes down to the lack of value when it comes to black bodies. Right. You have people that legitimately feel like it doesn't matter that the league is 90 percent black. Right? It doesn't matter that all of these African-American players have all the talent and draw, draw eyes from from around the world. It doesn't matter. Right. You have these men that are in a position of power and they feel right that they are granting the opportunity. Right? Not, not that the not not that the talent is what brings the money, right? They feel that they have some specific particular skill, right? But we see the evidence of the opposite, right? Because they took Donald Sterling's team away from him. And what happened? We just found somebody else that had money to pay the bills, right? The talent is still there. It doesn't take any particular talent to own a team, right? But the arrogance that goes along with it is what empowers, makes people feel like they can make these type of statements because they feel like it, it's the reason why. Remember when LeBron James had all of those 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 uh, conflicts with with the owner of of uh, Cleveland, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That, for yeah. Sim- for similar type statements, right? Yeah. If you don't want to play for me, you're Judas, right? I own you. Right. This is this, this, this is this is how they feel. Right. So that's why I say I don't have much to say about it because it's more of the same. It's more of the same elitist attitude. Right. Right. And it's, entitlement it's, mixed it's, with race. The, the reason why I feel like it's important, because, you know, you and I, you, you know, I know most, you know, people, most African-Americans know most, you know, ethnic minorities know that, yeah, you know what, the NFL, first of all, we know has a poor track record of like progressiveness and inclusion, right, in its history. We know that, yeah, you know what, yeah, they would rather have the minorities or African-Americans as laborers as opposed to leadership. We know that. However, the general, I, I get that the general consensus or like a lot of people want to always think that racism, especially when you're talking about like sports, is like in the minority, right? There are only a few bad apples. No, 
Absolutely not. And I feel like this is why the, the John Gruden situation is important because, no, this showcases that his thought process, his attitude, his behavior is not an anomaly. It's not, right? This is more current. This is a football. This is a coach, right, that's held, like you said, so many different positions of leadership, right? He's been in charge of, you know, who makes the team, who doesn't. He's been in ESPN, right? He's had all of these different positions. He's had head coaching positions in Tampa Bay and all these other different places. And so, yeah, like you said, he's talking to other people that he feels comfortable, you know, sharing these statements with. So that that shows that, like, no, he's not like this owner who was like with Donald Sterling, who's far removed, that's old, and all these other different excuses. Me, no, this is John Gruden, right? Mm-hmm. This is the coach that was so sought after, and he's the golden boy and Chucky and whatever other these other different nicknames they want to give him. No, you know what? This personifies that this is the majority, right? And I'm not going to act like I work for the NFL and anything of that nature, but no, the, there are more like-minded people. This is why I feel like it's important because, no, this there are other people that he was comfortable talking to. There are other people that love John Gruden. There are all these other different people, and maybe this is potentially the reason why, right? Mm-hmm. So this is more common than people always want to tend to say that, oh, when situations like this take place, it's isolated. Oh, it's only one or two people. They're in the minority. No, this is the majority, it seems like, because more and more of these are coming out, and they're still going through emails. So- the dragnet of in the effect of this is that there's going to be more people, right? There's going to be more names that are going to come out, right? And unfortunately, the NFL is is not going to improve as long as you have people like Gruden elevated, just like you said. As long as they're protected, as long as they're prioritized, you know, in the NFL's hierarchy, right? This is not going to happen. Now, he's been having these conversations, and he's felt like this for years. Right. And the only difference is that the emails became public. Right. That's the biggest difference. Right. So it does. Unfortunately, his departure is not going to change the biggest picture. And unfortunately, like, you know, you, you talked about, especially with the LeBron situation, no matter how many social justice slogans that the NFL stencils like in its end zone or allows their players to put on its helmets, no matter how prominent, you know, how many black artists that the league is going to hire to perform at the Super Bowl halftime show, no matter how much money the NFL gives to all these anti-prejudice organizations, like it, it doesn't fix the corrosive hierarchy and the institutionalized racism um, that exists in the league. No, this is where when you see situations like this, where you see emails just being sent out to all these other different people, that are comfortable going back and forth, the exchanges, this is where it goes, right? So unless the league is going to really chooses to confront like the prejudice and and all these other different, you know, substantial ways, like, unfortunately, the hierarchy is still going to have, you know, it's going to continue to have these bigots. It's going to continue to have, it's going to continue to protect power over power because I, I watched the NFL and I'm being completely honest, you know, you and I are both fans of, of the NFL. We're going to tune in and watch. And that is where the issue is, right? There's no fundamental change because they know people are going to continue to watch. Right. So, you know, I'm hoping that this starts to send the message that no, it's not just a couple, just a couple bad apples, right? This isn't just, Oh, well, there are a few people that feel like that. No, but no, like this, this is it. Like mm-hmm. this, this is happening more frequently. So, um, We'll, we'll definitely continue to see. And again, I'm not surprised. Unfortunately, you're not surprised. Um, 
that just comes out. But now this is this needs people need to start to understand and say, you know, this is more prevalent than people are giving it credit for. We can't continue to be like, oh, this isn't this doesn't happen as much. No, this this is here and this is happening. So, you know, uh, Colin Kaepernick shouldn't have to feel validated because I'm sure he felt validated way before. But no, this goes along the lines of what he was talking about. So um, we'll continue to monitor um, and, and see what else of the fallout. Like, I feel bad also, for, like you mentioned, um, Carl Nassab um, or Nassib because that was his coach, right? So, and unfortunately, people in marginalized groups tend to find themselves in these situations or in these frightening certain scenarios where their fate is being somebody is being determined by somebody who disrespects or dehumanizes them. So when you think about that layer, like you're playing for a coach who actually, this is how they feel towards, you know, you and in, in your community. So, um, you know, we'll see, man, but I don't know. I feel like it's going to be a lot of other people to fall, which, which should happen if, you know, if they're involved in this. All right. So speaking of being involved in things, all right, Jason, are you a Netflix fan? Of course. All right. So Netflix, South Korean thriller, Squid Game has officially become Netflix's biggest ever series launch. The show has managed to draw in 111 million, million, million viewers Mm -hmm. since its debut on September 17th. All right. So for those of you that aren't familiar with the Squid Game um, or you haven't seen it, uh, the basic premise of the show is that 456 people that are extremely in debt for various reasons are a part of a competition to win millions of dollars in which they play in these series of child uh, children's games. So the losers of each game are eliminated. And I really mean that in every sense of the word, uh, meaning that they are killed on the spot when they lose. All right. So now at every turn there, the show depicts different acts of physical and emotional violence that are heaped into the characters or heat and that the characters are exposed to their twists and turns um, that also contribute to a player's death throughout the series. So the life altering prize money is awarded to the very last player standing. Um, so despite its success that we just talked about, there are, um, it's really come out that parents uh, who allow their children uh, to watch Squid Game may be fostering bullies as they get older. All right. So recently, a social psychologist uh, who's based in London, Dr. Uh, Sandra Wheatley, said that the violent series could impede young kids' uh, social and emotional development, encouraging them to turn a blind eye or even join in when other people are being attacked. Um says our youngest generation may not understand the show's context and it makes them question or may make them question why is no one helping them if someone if there's an act of violence that's taking place and um, the messages that we don't want are that we don't want our kids to take on board these type of messages so um jay what do you think you watch the show right i mean i yeah i watched it i mean I thought it was a good show from the perspective of like an adult, right? I thought it was a good show. Right. Thought it was, I thought it was entertaining. I, I binged it over like two days. Um, I'm a little bit conflicted because I don't really want to make like a generalized statement because I don't really have the specifics on what she was basing her, her statements on. But I guess just with the information we have, 
you know, I kind of, as you can see, like I'm kind of struggling with my answer, right? Because I, I kind of, I'm kind of on both sides. And what I, what I mean by that is um, when she was saying like children won't understand the context. I mean, first of all, I would think, you know, I didn't verify this because I, you know, but Netflix has an age limit, right? So they have kids Netflix, which I, I don't know what age it starts at, but I'm sure it's not 13. Yeah, I don't, I don't think they're showing this on the kids kids part. Right. So so she's really so she's talking about not children. She's really talking about adolescents, right? She's talking about like the children that would, the, the kids that would have access to this, which right. I would assume is at least 12 and up. Right? And when we're talking about 12 and up, you know, I feel differently, right? Because she's taking one position that it may make children in um adolescents indifferent to violence. But to take that position and kind of and kind of like ground yourself there neglects the fact that it, it almost makes it seem like the adolescents are watching it and they're not seeing all the other messages that are hidden within the the the, the series. Right? There was a whole lot of like sacrifice, saving other people's lives, talking about family. You you understand what I'm saying? So it's yeah. kind of like it's almost like hyper focusing on one on on I, I get it it's violent you know what I mean but is she writing an article about Grand Theft Auto because I'm sure I mean if this had a reach of a hundred and eleven million views right I would wonder I would wonder and I really want to know how many copies of Grand Theft Auto they've sold to kids and adolescents right and if there would be the same level of concern, right? And because what I'm saying is it really comes down to, if you ask me, environmental influences, it comes down to if there's a parent there, okay, that's that that is able to process whatever it is with you so that you understand this is entertainment. Because when you have a kid that understands this entertainment, they can watch Squid Game age appropriately, they can play Grand Theft Auto. When they get old enough, they can watch Goodfellas and they're not going to go kill somebody. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Um, so I'm a little conflicted, um, you know. I think where, I really, I, where a lot of the concern is coming from is that um, what they're what some schools or what some people are starting to see is that um, kind of the copycat series. Right. Or you kind of starting to see um, it play out in school. So. Um, there have been reports that like overseas, like in Belgium and in other different areas that um, they were finding that the squid game or they were finding students that were reenacting the dangerous uh, games on the playground as like it was depicted in the series. So um, in one situation, you had the stu- you had students that were um, that were seen like punching each other as a penance to losing the red light, green light game. So in the, in the series, and I, I'm sorry for um, being a spoiler. So spoiler alert, um, you know, in the series, in the first couple episodes or in the first episode, they played red at green light. However, the people that are disqualified are shot dead, right. In the game. So in this version, I guess what kids are, have been doing is that um, as a punishment, the kids are getting put are getting like punched or there's some type of violence that's being enacted. Um, so I'm, you know, I understand that concern at the same time, I feel like there, there are two sides of it. Right. So let's look at it like this. You mentioned Grand Theft Auto, um, which is a good example. I look at it like, well, is this series any different than any type of like 
gaming survival dystopian movie like the hunger games or like maze runner right where that in those movies it pits kids against each other in battle arenas right so now is they're not those movies like the hunger games are not nearly as graphic as the squid games i'll admit to that um but you know and and i think also the current concern comes in where people are, are looking at it where you have something that's like a game that most people are familiar with, right? Everyone's familiar with red light, green light. It's a seamlessly innocent game, but now people are adding that, um, that violent or that brutality element to it, right? To a game that was, that was relatively simple. So I get that, but at the same time, like I said, you have other movies that are, have like a similar type of, theme where it's that you know that survival ship violence aspect so you know i mean it's a situation where um one i mean in in the article it would they had some parents that don't want let their kids watch that which is fine i do feel like yeah under just given the violence alone yeah certain kids shouldn't be watching this you know but then there was also a parent in the article that said that her kid was like seven or eight and she lets her kid watch that. And you know what? I'm not here to condemn anyone's, you know, parenting style. Um, because I imagine people have their reasons and you can probably find support on both sides for letting your kid watch it, not letting your kid watch it. I would just say, as far as I'm concerned, I probably wouldn't let my kid watch it below a certain age right? just because of the violence factor. And at the same time, you also have to understand that kids have access to things. So the same way how a kid is going to get access to Grand Theft Auto, even though he doesn't make the age rating, right? Or like kids have access to it. So Netflix definitely does have parental controls, but, you know, kids are resourceful and they can get into dad's account, mom's account, whoever, and watch good games, either whether at their house or at someone else's house. And, you know, they can view it. So I think it's difficult you know, and parents can try to put as much parenting controls as much as possible, but kids are resourceful. Um, I think it's just more, I believe, having that conversation if, you know, your son or daughter or whoever does get a chance to watch it, right? It's like having those conversations, I feel like is probably the best method. I'm not going to, I'm not a parenting expert. However, I feel like that's usually the best way or manner to try to get ahead of things. Because throughout this whole series, there's a lot of, you know, psychology, social psychology, you know, treasures in it, right? Like people tend to always want to talk about like the capitalistic undertones and, you know, the um, difference in between the socioeconomic status and things of that nature. And I agree with it. But there's also a lot of psychology that also contributes to like why some of the violence is taking place. So I feel like having that conversation you know, with your kid, if you're watching it together, or if you like, you have a discussion, could possibly get ahead of that, and maybe you know, act as a as a protective factor against potential bullying. I mean, I the last thing I would kind of say is, um, as solid as an answer I could give as to whether this makes kids or adolescents indifferent to violence is, I do not think on its own it would. Right? I don't think on its own you know, this or any, you know, one movie, one show is going to be enough to influence a child to be completely indifferent, right? And to me, that's that's where the values come in, 
That's where the environment comes in. That's where the caretaker comes in because, you know, um, it's going to take a lot of people to convince me, you know, that a kid who's who's had positive values, you know, poured into him, who's been a nurturing environment, who's been taught all these all these positive things when it comes to social and emotional, you know, development is going to watch this one movie and then all of a sudden, you know, the no bullying zone at school doesn't matter anymore. It's a little extreme. You know what I mean? Because what we know about development is that things just don't usually work like that. You know, um, it's not usually a one off. So are, are certain groups of children who have certain factors in place, will they be more vulnerable? I believe so. That's a possibility. Right. Um, and if she's talking about a specific group, you know, children or certain factors, then that, you know, um, then that's I, I would be in lockstep with that. But in general, no, because on its own, you know, um, again, when we talk about development, things don't usually work like that. Yeah, like you and I, you and I know that there's a certain age where kids are more susceptible to some of those environmental influences, right? Um, so again, but that's usually in that younger. Not to say that kids that are adolescents or teenagers can't be susceptible to things, but also they're more developed. There's more things that they're able to take into consideration as far as their flexible and adaptive thinking and reasoning, right? So it's not like they're just watching this and they're just like, all right, let's go do it. Right. Of course, yeah, kids are going to go mimic things, right? And I think that's also a part where people get frustrated and have to, because of that lack of control, because your kid gets to a certain age and when they get to school or when they go with their friends, they're going to probably want to mimic a lot of different things that they see on TV. We saw this years and years ago with the Beavis and Butthead, right? Remember when they were doing all the different things and people went out and, and kids were going out there and, you know, hurting they each other. Jackass. Right, jackass, right? Another good example. So then if it's happening in schools, if people are worried about as far as younger children, then that's also something that, and I'm not putting it solely on the school, but the environment does have to take place. The same way or we're going to put it on caretakers, we also have to, I think it's important that caretakers during the day, which are our schools, our teachers, our principals, our all these other different factors, is like being aware that, hey, you know what? This is starting to happen. We're starting to see that kids are going to start doing this on the schoolyard or this is a possibility. So let's make sure we keep a watchful eye out for it. Right. Yeah. Let's not make it, you know, like because the teachers are watching it, too. Parents are watching it like you start to see these things happen. And unfortunately, kids are going to mimic not with the intent to hurt, but just because it's the newest or whatever fad that's on television or it's on social media. Right. So just like how we talked about a few weeks ago with, you know, some of these TikTok challenges and all these other different things, people are going to mimic these things. Right. So it's right. a sense of, all right, what are some safety measures that we can put in place? Um, but I agree. It's not one situation. They're going to watch the show and then all of a sudden they're going to manifest to a bullying. There's a lot more inf- environmental, parental, different influence and considerations that go into it. So sure. uh, we'll, we'll see, you know. All right. All right. So unfortunately, we're still uh, dealing with this pandemic, Jack. Still here. Yeah. All yeah. right. Um, and recently a study, uh, came across our attention that more than 120,000 children have lost a caregiver during this Corona, uh, pandemic. All right. So, uh, the collaborative study was done by the CDC and Harvard university and they found that one child in the U S has lost or loses a parent or caregiver for every four COVID-19 related deaths. 
Um, and so, unfortunately, um, there's been, among those deaths, there's been a substantial disparity um, that's been observed across racial and ethnic groups, um, where minority caregivers and their children have been impacted or disproportionately uh, impacted by the corona death. It says that children of racial and ethnic minorities account for 65% of children who have lost a primary, a primary caregiver to COVID-19. And although they make up just 39% of the total population, Hispanic and Black children account for more than half of all the children who have lost their primary caregiver. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think right off the bat, that's the part that when you hear about how many, you know, people have been affected as far as like deaths and, you, you know, we you see that number continue to rise, right? You see how many people have passed away, how many people have been affected. We only typically think about that person, right? We tend to think about that individual that passed away from COVID-19 complications. Mm -hmm. Um, And you don't think about, unless you know the person like personally or it's affected you, you don't think about, okay, that person's family, right? Mm -hmm. That's the element that gets lost. I mean, um, that's the, the aspect that doesn't get talked about or is not highlighted enough that, yeah, if someone passes away from, you know, this virus that just like in any situation, it affects not only that person, but it affects their family, it affects their children. And especially if we're talking about those that are coming from, you know, that are um, in the minority, as far as racial, um, then you're talking about a lot of people that are coming from the single homes, single parent homes, unfortunately. So what happens to those children, right? Do they go into the system or do, are they living with a loved one? Are they living with a sibling? Like so many different things. And again, this is the aspect that's not talked about, you know, as far as uh, the depths, when we start to see these numbers rise and we've talked about it in previous episodes, unfortunately how it affects and how it's impacted our community greatly. So as you were reading the article, um, what was your take? Oh, well, I mean, I was just, just kind of thinking about how sometimes, you know, uh, before I read this article, it was like I was looking at the numbers. Um, I don't know if the numbers of deaths is at 700,000 or more by now. I know it's in that area. Um, but I used to just look at it as like individual people. You know what I mean? Um, but when you look at the impact on like systems, whether it be a community, a family system, whichever one you want to look at, you know, the death of that one person, especially we're talking about primary caregivers and then they're talking about another 22,000 lost a secondary caregiver. That's a drastic impact, right? Um, You're talking about parents are going to be impacted. Teachers are going to be impacted in terms of the classroom, right? That's going to be impacted in terms of their caseloads and social workers right on down the line, right? Because, Primary caregivers, you know, are, are when we talk about like um, we talk about like first response, not first responders, but like um, these are the backbones of these are the people who are the backbone of our society, right? The people that are raising and caring for our, our most vulnerable assets, right? Our children. That's what I'm struggling to find. Right. The impact of that is is, is heavy, right? Um, 
I'm gonna be very honest. Like, I was reading this article. They said children facing orphanhood is a hidden global pandemic. There was already four hundred thousand kids in foster care in the United States. Now, right now, you know. Um, so now you're talking about another hundred and twenty thousand, you know, that are that are vulnerable for that, right? Because you take away somebody's primary caregiver depending on their social economic status, they may be headed for care, right? Because the family system might not be set up to support, you know, somebody else's children, right? Um, even though culturally we may try to do it anyway. Um, so you have that part. And then to be very honest, and I, and I don't know if this is wrong of me or not, but it kind of made me mad too, right? It made me mad for every conversation I've had with somebody who's respectfully ignorant in terms of vaccines, right? And adults who are in charge of children's lives, right? And have made the decision not to get vaccinated, right? Because we got to understand the decisions of adults don't just affect them. Some of these people inevitably that died chose not to take a vaccine. All of them were not immunocompromised, right? So. That's why it made me mad, right? Because I'm sure it's not every person, but in there, they're gonna be stories of people who just knew better. They, for, for, for 20, 30 years of their life, they've been doing something else. They've been interested in something else. They've been a teacher, lawyer, personal trainer. And two years ago, they became an expert in viruses and a virologist. And they decided not to take a vaccine. And I'm not trying to, but this is what has happened. Yeah. You have people, you have people all over that two years ago they were doing something else. Their, their attention was focused something else, somewhere else. They were experts in something else. And right now they will argue with people who have had who have had medical degrees for two decades about evidence that they found. Right. And this is the result. So if I sound annoyed, that's why. Right. Because we have the decisions of adults impact these children. And I'm going to leave it right there. No, it, it brings up it's a broader impact because um I feel like you're not alone. You're probably um in the norm in, in regards to how many people are thinking about the impact that it has when someone does pass away, right? You're only like you said, you're only thinking about that individual. And you you mentioned so many different avenues of someone's life or to that system that's affected, but especially like it's a broader impact financially, right? Like you know, who's going to take care of that particular individual? And I think that's something that people, you know, and people have the right to choose whatever you want to get the vaccine. You don't. We, we, we've discussed that at length um, in previous episodes. And I think at the same time that people are only thinking about, you know, themselves. What do you typically hear? It's my right. It's my body. I don't want to do this. The foreign. I don't want to put right. this foreign substance into my body. I don't want to do this and X, Y. So yeah, you're thinking about you. Cool. But at the same time, your whatever your decision is, and especially the people that you're caring for, right, goes bigger than that, right? Either people that are counting on you, right? So I'm wondering how many people think about that aspect. I'm wondering how many people take that into consideration when you're thinking, oh, I don't want to do this. And then, like you said, you're seeing numbers that say, well, this lowers your risk. This does this X, Y, and the third. You see, you know, the empirical data 
And then again, Europe people are only, or at least it appears that folks are only thinking about themselves, right? Which oh, is, absolutely. Is issue, you know? What I can guarantee you is 100% of these people, right, vaccinated or not, when they start to have labored breathing, where do you think they go? They all go to the same place. Where do you think they go? The people that have been telling you that the hospital and the doctors are lying, where do you think they go? Mm-hmm. They go sit in the emergency room, right? Yeah, same spot. Yeah, because now they don't know. Now they don't know better anymore. And 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 again, you know, I'm sorry. I, I don't want it to seem condescending, you know, because that's not the goal. But with certain things that you, if if you if we were looking up at the sky and somebody was telling us it was red, and we looked and it was blue. We would only argue with them for very for, for we wouldn't argue with them at all. We'd be like, oh, that's what you perceive, and we would move on, right? And that this this is this is kind of where we're at, you know, with people, but this is what we see. So I'm just at the point where I'm, you know, upset about it because you have the ignorance of adults that's now impacting children. And again, unfortunately, we are the ones that are suffering, right? kids that look like us right because it's happening in our communities right this is the thing that if you if you've recognized or noticed the pattern jay like with every covid situation whichever different aspect where we've talked about how it affects your mental health or how now we're talking about you know the aspect of how it affects children how we're just so many different avenues of how this covid has affected so many different people on so many different levels it's always again in our community we are suffering. It's impacting us greatly because of, you know, the ambivalence or the reluctance to get the vaccine and all these other different things. And now it's affecting our children. Right. Right. The people we're supposed to be, you know, raising to be kings, to be queens, to do all these other different. Right. We're raising them to be great. At the same time, when we make these decisions, this is the, that's where my frustration comes, right? Because now you're saying you want to raise them to be strong. You want to do all these other different things to lift them up, but you're not giving them a chance if you're not going to be there, right? And that's the aspect of self, right? Taking right. care of ourselves. We always talk about the, you know, the being on the plane, if the oxygen mask come down, we put it on ourselves first, and then we put it on the kid, right? So we can be there to continue to, to help the kid, to help the kid survive. But we're not doing that, right? It's the same mindset, and mentality here like we have to take care of ourselves so we can make sure we remain around so we can continue to take care of it so you know that's where my frustration comes in i'm, I'm hoping that i know it, you know you just hope that some form of perspective can be that mechanism of change um so hopefully you know this article gets more you know um grow some legs and it, and it continues to, to spread so people can you know take a look at that it's not just you it's the other people that count on you that you need to stay around for i mean i'm being yeah. optimistic man um i'm not man you know, listen this is not this is not ending anytime soon there's a reason why we one of the most if not the most developed you know and wealthy one of the wealthiest countries in the world but in terms of being vaccinated we're like at the bottom, right? So we have a, a, a we have a disease of conspiracy theories and a whole bunch of things that are going around like the flu right now. So do I think this is going to end? No. It's gonna, I think it's going to be with us for a while, but we're going to have to deal with it. Yeah, we'll see, man. All right. So, Jay, we're about to go right into 
your wheelhouse, bro. All right. So recently, a study came out regarding the physical effects of brain of visiting nature. All right. So most of us, we live in cities and we don't spend as much time as we should outside in the green, right? Outside in our natural spaces, um, the way people did years and years, generations ago, right? Unfortunately, you know, we don't we don't get a chance to do that or people don't do it. Um, and it's come out that, you know, people that live in the city tend to have higher risk for anxiety, depression, and other mental illnesses um, than people that live outside of urban cities. So a new study was published last month um, in which volunteers who, who they found that volunteers who walk briefly through lush green portions of, um, of a college campus, it was a Stanford campus, were more attentive and happier afterward than volunteers who just strolled for the same amount of time near heavy traffic. All right. So, uh, Jay, this, this is your thing, man. With more information that was in it, like, take us through it, bro. Cause you, 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 um, you know, this is your thing. Of course, we, we this is more so I brought this to the table just in terms of like emphasizing and encouraging self-care. Um, you know, before we get into it, like basically in terms of this study, you know, they were showing that, you know, being out in nature specifically. And I think they would they were measuring like being out for about an hour and a half um, versus not being out in nature, or being in like an urban kind of environment. Um, they they were able to show a reduction in, in the risk for anxiety, depression, um, and not only the reported mood, but also in terms of actually measuring the brain activity, right? Mm-hmm. So the science is there. So I just want to get that part out of the way. Um, more importantly, I kind of just wanted to highlight and encourage people to kind of get outside, right? I know the weather is changing, but you know, as well as I do, you know, it's a personal passion of mine in terms of like hiking or walking wherever I'm at on vacation anywhere i find somewhere to hike in philly in the city i I find places to hike and walk um and just the reason why i thought this article was just amazing is because the science kind of like what they were measuring through measuring the brain activities and the actual assessments actually matched like how i feel (laughs) so it's like i can literally get up in the morning and be stressed and have things on my mind um, and go for a two-hour hike, and when I get back, you know, it's, all, it's, 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 it's like a weight is lifted off me, you know what I mean? Um, so that's what intrigued me about this article, is that the the, the science kind of matched in terms of my anecdotal experience. Um, so the only reason why I brought this to the table is just, um, just getting out in the nature, whether you're walking, whether you're jogging, um, taking off your shoes, walking in grass, getting that contact, right? Getting the sun on your body helps you to center yourself, ground yourself, um, soothe your mind. Um, and it can cause, you know, uh, physiological like changes in our body. So that's why I just encourage the self-care portion. Yeah. I mean, speaking even from my own personal experience, um, that's something that I made a, um, a conscious effort to do, um, you know, at my job. We, you know, it's a wide open campus, right? Our the camp where, I, where I'm, I'm at. And um, I made a conscious effort to, you know, get out and just, you know, walk at lunch. Whether I'm walking like for a mile or a mile and a half, whatever the situation may be. And I started to notice that difference. You know, like 
you know, I, I'm, I was a, a walker before, but it's, it's different than, say, when I was working at Penn and I would go on my lunch break and I'm walking around like just in the city area and I would just have my, my music and different things like it's it's different working in a rural area at the hospital that I'm at. And it's just nothing but trees like it's nothing. It's just wide open nature like it is. It's it's just different. It's a different element. I, I wish I could be, you know, um, more articulate in, in explaining the difference. But I've noticed it and I've made it, I've, I'm, you know, I'm almost disappointed at times when I don't walk at lunch. Like if things spill over into the lunchtime or if I got to like it cuts into my lunch break, like I get upset when I'm not able to be out there. Like I've even made it a point like to try to do some walking, even as like when it's raining or like if, if the weather broke like over the winter, just to get out there and walk. man. Um, and I've definitely noticed the difference between walking out there in a rural area and walking in like University City. Um, and I encourage other people to do it also, you know, as you get an, an opportunity and doesn't always have to be, you know, like you're trying to do it during work, just like, as you mentioned it, Jay, like you just get an opportunity to walk and not everybody yeah. might have access to, you know, a park. Um, you know, there are some areas where, you know what, even if you're just walking in the neighborhood, if, you know, as long as it's, it's safe, you know, I employ people to do that. Like I really do like just getting in the habit of walking and then, you know, once you get an opportunity to find a park or find an area when the weather gets better, do it. But yeah, you know, lower stress levels, like the science is out there, not just in this article, but in a lot of different articles, you can Google it and, and you'll get multiple articles and things that will support, um, you know, what we're trying to um, promote is that, you know, walking has such a profound effect on your mental health. Like it, you know, reduces, like you said, the stress levels, um, you know, the anxiety, other different things, just getting out and moving. Right. Just having that physiological response um, of just getting out, whether it's after work, whether it's on the weekend, just, you know, find a way to try to incorporate 10, 15 minute walk into, you know, your day or somewhere throughout the week. Um, I promise you, you, um, you know, of course, it'll be good for, you know, losing weight, burning calories and your metabolism, but it's also going to be great for, for your mental health. So, um, yeah, okay. I like this article. I'm happy that more information is coming out and that they're you know, distinguishing the difference between the, the city and, and the, um, in the rural areas or being in the park. Cause I didn't, I didn't, I knew there was a difference. I didn't think it was just me, but this actually puts in the play of like what I've experienced, like from just, you know, walking during, during lunch periods. So, um, yeah, this is, um, this is, this is dope. I like this. Yeah, man, definitely. So everybody make an effort, get out there and walk this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. And, and if you're, um, you know, if you you hit us back with some, you know, some good support, Dr. J will actually walk with you. You know, he'll find you. He'll he'll find you. He'll find the park. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> he'll find he'll walk with you through the park, guys. So okay, this is uh, the call now. Act now, okay? Uh, for a low, low price. That don't, that don't that don't come with the subscription. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know what I mean, bro? All right, <laughs> nah, listen, man. You walk, you walking with the pros, man. Listen, you gonna walk, you do it right. But they, you know, we'll have you in there, man. You do your box breathing and everything, but we'll get you in there. All right. So, um, right. Jay, before we get out of here, anything uh, we need to share with anyone? Nope. Just wanna um, again thank everybody for showing their support. Um, we're gonna keep the content coming and. Again, if you have any ideas or any suggestions, please drop it in the comments or, you know, DM one of us, um, you know, either 
on Instagram, or you know, you can send it to the um, email account. Absolutely, guys. Good. So, um, episode thirty. You know, we're keeping it moving. We want to thank everybody for your support. Let's do it again. Let's get another thirty. All right. So we appreciate everybody watching and listening. Jay, as always, a pleasure, my friend. I'll see you next time, bro. All right, my brother. Later. Uh,